Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are talking about the relationship between the Old and New Testaments. This is not as straightforward as it seems. We have this Bible composed of two different parts, one written primarily in Hebrew, the other written all in Greek. They come out of a the old people of Israel before Jesus and then the Jews who did believe in Jesus afterwards. Often putting the two together has been a challenge to understate the problem quite severely. So today we're going to be talking about how the two correlate to each other. Um, Dad, I'm going to hand it right off to you. I think you have some strong feelings about this, which, uh, well, I do too. <laughs> but let's start with your strong feelings. Well, um, yes, uh, decisive for my own theological development was uh, about 30 years ago, I undertook a study of the early apostolic fathers, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, from the end of the first century through the course of the second century. And I discovered that they were fighting a life-and-death battle against two very attractive and powerful religious movements that were trying to, uh, as it were, co-opt the New Testament gospel. These movements kind of went together hand-in-glove the big movement was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught that this world in which we live is the inferior, even alien and hostile world of an evil deity. And the good God lived beyond in a celestial world of light far away. And that somehow we had fallen away from the world of light and become imprisoned in this dark world of matter. And then Jesus came from the world of light to summon the little sparks of divine light and enlighten them to their true identity so that they could cast off their social psychological selves and get in touch with the divine flame within them and thus at least existentially or spiritually fly up to their heavenly home again. That was Gnosticism. Connected with it was a teaching about Christ called Docetism from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. And Docetism said Jesus only seemed to be human. He only appeared to be flesh and blood. In reality, he was this one of these... uh, beings of divine light. The first letter to John, you can read and see that it regards this docetism to be the life-threatening heresy of the earliest Christianity. Antichrist is whoever denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. Now, what does this have to do with the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments? It has this to do with it. The Gnostics thought that the Lord uh, of the Old Testament was the evil deity of this fallen creation, whose scriptures were meant and law were meant to trap us here forever and ever. And they said, then Jesus is the emissary from the divine world of light 
who came to liberate us from the clutches of this evil God of the Old Testament who enslaves us with his law in order that we can then know our true identity as uh, lost pieces of divine light and then reunite uh, with God. And so a very influential second century heretic named Marcion, who was related to these movements of Gnosticism and Docetism somehow, he was actually the first one to try to publish a New Testament canon. And what he did was he utterly threw away the Hebrew Scriptures Old Testament and said, we don't want anything to do with them. They're all works of this incompetent, evil deity of this world. He also threw away most of what we call the New Testament. He saved only the Gospel of Luke, threw everything else in the Gospel tradition away. Uh, and even Luke, he didn't like the birth narratives. He didn't like the Christmas story because he thought it was very unseemly. What a jerk. Well, he, he thought it was very unseemly for the divine being of light to spend nine months in Mary's womb. Gross. And then to pass... Gross. To say nothing of the exit. Yeah. And then just, yeah, to, then to have to suffer the humiliation of passing through her birth canal. Come on. This is very unspiritual. So, and then he, totally. he, uh, he also edited Paul's letters selectively and so forth. So this is a kind of a the first really serious Christian heresy, and it has everything to do with the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. So why is it that Marcion's children are still among us now, and I've heard them preaching in our pulpits? <laughs> I guess that's what we're going to be taking up. This is not as alien as 1,800 years ago would suggest. Right. And we do have to answer that question seriously. Yaroslav Pelikan, in his History of Christian Thought, uh, offered this explanation. As bad as Gnosticism was, perhaps it gave a more existentially satisfying answer to the riddle of human suffering. So I think there is this idea, it's not your fault, you're the victim of a hostile demonic power that has enslaved you and blinded you. You're suffering because you don't even realize your true identity as a child of God. So thoroughly obscured is your this true identity, so alienated you are from your true essence. It's a very flattering kind of theology, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it bears clear, clear analogs to the apocalyptic thing. It just leaves out the whole repentance and personal involvement in the sin part. Well, that's a very, I agree with that, sir. I think it's a very helpful comment that you just made because one of the riddles scholars face is where did Gnosticism come from? And my own view, which I've argued in my books, is that it's really the failure of Jewish apocalyptic after the Roman uh, conquest of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple that many disillusioned apocalyptic Jews turned to forms of Gnosticism. We certainly know that a lot of early Gnosticism has a Jewish milieu. And of course, at this time in history, Judaism and Christianity are still deeply intermingled. And so it flows from these uh, Jewish disillusionment and apocalyptic into early Christian forms of Gnosticism. 
And it's interesting, you know, the old, the canonical Old Testament prophets charge the the victims, you might say, heavily with their sin in creating the situations that lead to conquest, like by, by Babylonians or Assyrians or whatever. And it could be that they're just burned out with no way of getting out of that ongoing cycle of conquest due to sin. So maybe the, the Gnostic answer, like you said, was flattering and said, you can just be purely a victim. It's not your fault anymore. I can see why that would be a relief on one level. Yeah. And it's current for, for Jewish people today. I had a wonderful Jewish student last year uh, whom I really liked and admired, and she did her senior thesis with me. And she came to the conclusion that the God of the covenant is dead. The, the Holocaust is the refutation of the God of the covenant. And oh, that's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. I, you know, we were close. We were friendly. So this, please understand this in, in context of a, of a good relationship. I just said to her again and again, don't give the Nazis posthumous victories. Don't let the, wow. don't let the Nazis denial of the God of the covenant become also your denial of the God of the covenant. And that's where we kind of left things. And she, I just recently heard from her and she said, she's still wrestling with these questions. Well, that is, that is Israel. That is Israel. That's, that's Israel. That's for sure. Yeah. And that leads to another, you know, another reason why uh, you mentioned the theology of Deuteronomy. If you do these things, you will live. If you don't do these things, you will die. It's your choice. Of course, you're not going to do it, and therefore all these bad things are going to happen to you. <laughs> yeah, you know? ouch. And, and so what do you do with a major theology of Hebrew Scripture Old Testament, which is Deuteronomic in this regard? It is a problem. It's a problem not just for Christians. It's a problem for contemporary Jews. Yeah, I think the what well, what we'll get to as we talk through this is that we want it to be our common problem, not an oppositional or competitive problem between Christians and Jews. Amen. It's a problem we share. Yes. Yeah. Well, let me say a few things about how this has become such a major issue for me, um, sort of in, in uh, three steps. One is uh, I grew up listening to the scripture readings from the uh, original common lectionary, which was like a, an ecumenical um, Protestant project that came out of the revised Roman Catholic lectionary for mass following Vatican II. And then I think about the time I went to college thereabouts, uh, the revised common lectionary, which is the one most commonly used now by mainline Protestants, came into use. And um, without my realizing it, um, and this is what makes me not so fond of the RCL, is I had absorbed the lesson from it that the Old Testament existed to give you a less satisfying version of what Jesus was going to do better. (laughs) And so, you know, I thought the old the Old Testament was just there as the the foil, the contrast, the setup for the Jesus punchline, and I don't think that was a wrong thing. I mean, I you know, considering who I'm talking to, I did not come from a theologically ignorant household, but the effect of this kind of proclamation brought me to that conclusion. So then step two, when I got to seminary and studied with fantastic professors, most of all, beloved Don Jewell um, of Blessed Memory, um, you know, he was the one who really forced me to see the New Testament is 
unintelligible without the Old Testament. It's not there as a foil. It is the thought world. It is the set of conceptual possibilities. It is the milieu of the New Testament. All the New Testament writers are Jews. They are thinking like Jews. And the, of course, because Christianity and Judaism, you know, had this sort of Jacob and Esau split at the critical first century, it's so easy. And I also, <laughs> a great deal of very irresponsible Christian preaching for nearly 2,000 years, putting us into this hostile and competitive relationship, even if there are historical reasons for it, makes it very easy to see, well, the Old Testament is their book, and we just kind of borrow it in order to do our better book, the New Testament, you know. But uh, I really had to go through an entire transformation of my thinking about what the Old Testament was for me as a believer in Jesus, that it is also Holy Scripture. It is truly Holy Scripture. Um, I don't read it apart from Jesus, but it's not like it's bad or inadequate without Jesus. It is still scripture, even before Jesus comes along and does stuff with it, interprets it, fulfills it in, in new and compelling ways. But obviously, articulating that relationship is not easy and not straightforward. And then so finally, the third step, the way this became really urgent for me is just beginning to observe, for instance, how often the Old Testament lesson is dropped even by people who use the Revised Common Lectionary or the Psalms, or that implicitly, I, as I already alluded to, I have heard so many sermons that simply um, would never by people who would never, ever say anything hostile or negative towards Jews. They have learned that lesson on the kind of socio-political level. But there is a religious implication constantly that Judaism and the Old Testament are fun fundamentally exclusionary religions, premised on icky and uh, regressive notions of purification and so forth, um, or this very tit-for-tat, like the Deuteronomic thing that's purely, you know, you do the right thing and God will reward you, and that has nothing to do with grace, therefore we have nothing to do with it. I have heard a lot of that, but I have also heard um, almost a, an equal and opposite reaction um, is forcing the Old Testament to be hyper-Christianized, you know, like the only way to handle its awkward um, relationship to both Judaism and to Christianity is to, you know, force into it or eisegete out of it all of these overtly Christian meanings as if there is no challenge in seeing Christian meanings like, say, the Trinity. Now, I personally am okay finding the Trinity in the Old Testament, but if you insist that it is so obvious and so clear, you actually end up in the dangerous place exactly where our beloved Martin Luther did, which is the only reason you're not seeing this is because the devil has you. And that's also dangerous. And finally, I have seen Christians who simply don't want to touch the Old Testament, not because they think it's bad, but because they just feel guilty, perhaps rightly so, about what Christians have done to Jews, and therefore feel that any appropriation of the Old Testament is stealing the Old Testament from Jews. And therefore, it should be an act of religious respect just to be kind of hands off. Um, I think all of the these are disastrous and deadly for Christianity. Uh, well, I should probably be fair. They're disastrous for Christianity. They're likely to be deadly for Jews, um, and that should be a source of great alarm. Uh, we, we, we've talked a lot about um, Holocaust and Nazis, so let's maybe not go there this time. But in terms of the life of the Christian faith, this bad relationship to old, the Old Testament cannot continue, or our faith itself in Jesus is seriously endangered. Whew. All right. <laughs> well, I'm glad you got that off your chest. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> yes, I, I really 
positively echo all your thoughts here that um, if you don't have the awareness of Hebrew Scripture as our old, our Christian Old Testament, the newness of the New Testament is going to be impossible for you to discern. You're just not going to get it. And I think the way that a lot of modern people pull that feat off, now mind you, I'm criticizing this because it is a kind of a feat or intellectual gymnastics. After the Enlightenment had ruled knowledge of God out of bounds, where was theology to go? So I want to kind of go all the way from Marcion up to the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment is telling us uh, that it's impossible for finite creatures to make knowledge claims about God. Just can't be. So now what is theology supposed to do? Well, it can study historically representations, images, or ideas about God. We can't know God, but we can know about ideas, images, and representations of God. And this is called the history of religions approach. And it was predominant throughout the 19th century. It was the target of criticism by the Luther Renaissance and and by neo-Orthodox theology in the 20th century. But I think today it's made quite a comeback. Uh, In some ways, the new perspective on Paul is simply a new articulation of the history of religion's paradigm. So we can identify Paul's ideas about God in their continuity. Often the new perspective on Paul will say that in their continuity uh, with Israel, especially N.T. Wright. What's wrong with that? Well, I think from the beginning of this approach, Schleiermacher said we have to order the history of religion's teleologically. That means they have a goal. The history of religions is being guided to a more and more perfect representation of God. And so, naturally, Schleiermacher then put Christianity, or more specifically, Protestant Christianity, or even more specifically, Reformed Protestant Christianity, at the pinnacle of the evolution of the history of religions. That was handy. Yeah, well, somewhat to us today seems self-serving. But in the 19th century, Europeans were quite uh, certain that their religion was the superior supreme religion. And so their scholarship then put all other religions in some kind of relationship to this historical progress or evolution. And so in this scheme, then, you know, you went from the Hebrew prophets, high point, low point, Ezra and Nehemiah. Then you went from the Pharisees and Sadducees to Jesus, another high point. And then you went to the Apostle Paul, another low point. And then you went to early Catholicism, another very low point. But then finally the light broke through again with Luther, another high point. So, I mean, I'm being a little bit facetious, but this is how the whole history of religions was organized. And you see what happens here is that Judaism gets left behind in the dustbin of history as something that was outgrown 2,000 years ago and can only be held on to willfully 
by people clinging to a dead past. Because it's local and it's ethnic and it's got these laws. And so, you know, what good is it? It can't be universal and true for everybody. So it's just a regressive, backwards, local, parochial kind of thing. And that's where the, 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 the epitome of liberal theology was the histor- historical theologian Adolf von Harnack, who actually wrote a book on Marcion, recommending Marcion as the way forward for Christians today. Oh, ugh. Yeah, that's what he said. That's what he argued. He argued that Marcion was a misunderstood genius. Historically, it was impossible at that time, but today we should realize that the Old Testament has been superseded. It's to be left behind. And may I just say, since you said left behind, that a more popular analog to this is dispensationalism, which is a more fundamentalist movement that interprets um, God's action through history in different phases, and there are kind of different rules for each phase of the game. And so salvation is not actually faith and trust in Jesus, but it's knowing where you are in the scheme of history and making sure you're on the right side. And that is what gives rise to those, these crazy left behind and other kinds of wacky fictions and predictions of the end time and so forth. But also in that you see a, you know, you had the Old Testament is there in order to be like like mapped onto this scheme of history, but it's God's old way of dealing with us. And now it's behind us. So we can just kind of leave it behind. Right. It's another form of supersessionism. Exactly. So let's just then notice, let's return to your remarks, Sarah, that you know uh, certain young pastors who think if they preach on the Old Testament, they're stealing the Bible from the Jews. Right. And this is, I would say, the people I've heard this from are very sincere and concerned. This is not a sort of lighthearted or just get me out of this yucky Old Testament thing. This is genuine concern speaking. Well, why don't you explain to us what kind of fundamental confusion is involved with that concern, though? Well, so historically speaking, the problem is it just doesn't really know what Judaism is today or has been roughly the whole history of Christianity. So in the if you think of the first century as a whole crisis point, we have sort of two polarities of the crisis. The first is this um, Nazarene named Jesus, who is acclaimed as the Son of God and the Messiah, who was crucified, and then his disciples say was raised again. And there are some Jews who believe this, and there are some Jews who don't. And it is a severe internal conflict in the community, which can go on for a while because everyone is forced to play nice by the Romans who are controlling everything. But then the Romans stop playing nice and the year 80, 70 or so, they finally have had it with Jewish nationalist uprisings. They come in and sack Jerusalem, destroy the temple and the Jews who had already you know, really spread all over the, the Mediterranean world. They weren't all concentrated in Israel as people often think, but are everywhere. Um, they are dispersed and really sent out of their land on a on an exile that lasts, you know, till the early 20th century when there starts to be a reverse migration back into Palestine and eventually the formation of the state of Israel. But that means that Judaism, which like 
Christianity's denominationalism, it had many forms. There were, as you mentioned, Pharisees and Sadducees, and there are Essenes, and there are people who just go to the little local synagogue up in Galilee or whatever, and there are people who are living still in the old Babylonian territory or in Alexandria. There are all these different ways of being Jews and trying to figure out how to relate to their ancestral faith and language. Um, the way I look at it, um, I don't, this isn't like a kind of formal scheme, but that there are three principles points of relationship for Jews to their scripture, to the land of Israel, and to the temple in Jerusalem. And basically what happens when the Romans invade and sack the temple and send everybody out is that the the umbilical cord of connection to both land and temple has been severed. So what's left? All that's left is this Old Testament scripture. But the Old Testament scripture, I'm using the Christian phrase, obviously, Old Testament, is so connected to land and temple. How do you go on being a Jew in relationship to the God of Israel using the scripture when you can't follow through on the sacrifices of the temple, for example, or you are no longer dwelling in the promised land. And so the form of Judaism that emerges out of the the ruins of the temple and the dispersal from the land is what we now call rabbinic Judaism. And it's a Judaism that had already been developing, you know, it's in Jerusalem, but it's also outside of Israel. Like, um, and the, the seminal texts then are the Talmud, which is probably most people have heard of. It's this massively huge book of commentary, includes Mishnah, which is commentary on law, as well as what Christians might call more theological interpretations of Old Testament. But basically what it does is it creates a Judaism that can exist apart from land and temple, that can be observed in communal synagogue worship and especially in the home with Sabbath observance, the holidays, rites, uh, ongoing rites of, of uh, purification or dedication and so forth. So, <laughs> so the point of all of this is that Judaism, as we encounter it today, is almost entirely rabbinic Judaism, which does not have a direct and unmediated relationship to what we Christians call the Old Testament any more than we do. We access the Old Testament essentially as Gentile, mostly Gentile Christians, through the New Testament. Jews, rabbinic Jews, believing Jews today, access what we call the Old Testament through the Talmud and Mishnah and the whole tradition of rabbinic Judaism. So in a sense, both of our religions are bifurcating forks coming out of ancient Israel and the texts that we call the Old Testament. But both of us have to thread the needle through our respective books, Talmud on the one side or New Testament on the other. So uh, it's uh, I think a lot of Christians today don't realize that Jews have Talmud as well as Old Testament, just like we have New Testament as well as Old Testament. So seizing the Old Testament from them is not like taking it away from them. They have it, but they have it through the Talmud, just like we have it through the New Testament. Well, well spoken and a very good historical explanation, which has the cash value, if I can use that term from pragmatism, of pointing out that Christians are not stealing the scriptures from the Jews when they appropriate the Old Testament any more than Jews are stealing the scriptures from Christians when they read it through the rabbinic tradition. These are, like you said earlier, Jacob and Esau. These are sibling rivals, uh, both tracing their origins to the same source, though with very different understandings of the covenant by which they're connected to those scriptures. 
Sure. And of course, and of course, the really obvious linguistic difficulty here is the word Jew continues on. And I don't have any objection to that referring to both ethnic and religious Jews. So you perceive a kind of direct continuity from Old Testament Israel to Israel today. And again, I don't have any desire to take that away from them. But the continuity of Christianity with Judaism is therefore much less visible. And you see this already happening happening in the New Testament, where the Gospel of John, for example, talks about the Jews, meaning leaders of uh, Jerusalem Judaism who don't believe in Jesus, even though all the other characters in the stories are also Jews. Uh, So the the linguistic bifurcation of identifying the two happened really, really early on and can be misleading for us today in in that respect. Yeah, we could someday sometime talk about the very problematic distinction between ethnic and religious Judaism, which in a negative form is the problematic distinction between ethnic anti-Semitism on the one side and religious anti-Judaism on the other side. These are distinct but related phenomena, and untangling that relationship is a demanding but necessary spiritual and intellectual task for Christian theologians after the Holocaust. Yeah, let's definitely plan to do that. And that reminds me, let me just say here to our listeners as well, Dad and I are both Lutheran theologians, and we are very conscious of the problem of Luther and the Jews, and we will also take that up at a future issue. Let us just say clearly, we do not condone anything that he said against the Jews that was ugly, horrible, wrong, very unchristian, and very evil. So let's just lay that on the table, and we promise we will get back to those issues in greater detail um, in a future episode. Very good. Yep. Well, how should Christians regard the Old Testament today? Are you asking me? Yeah. Well, so here's the thing. As I was preparing for this, I was thinking about the artificial eisegesis of, say, the Trinity or Jesus in the Old Testament. But then it struck me as, how do you know it's artificial and how do you know it's eisegesis? I think that is not... That, that is what I want to avoid, but how do you avoid it successfully? Um, and it brought to mind, I, I want to read a couple of quotes here from um, contemporary theologian Ephraim Radner. He's an Anglican theologian, a really brilliant um, person uh, and a friend. Um, very grateful to know him and his work. In his book called Time and the Word, he has a chapter that's entitled Trinitarian Love Means Two Testaments. And this is such a startling statement, and I think in no way self-evident to the vast majority of Christians alive today. First of all, that it's Trinitarian love involving both Testaments, but that the nature of Trinitarian love is to have two Testaments, old and new. So let me read just a little excerpt from this chapter. He writes, distinct, non-equivalent, and absolutely necessary. The two Testaments are necessary to each other. But they are necessary not as ingredients to something greater, nor as sequential additives to a chemical process of knowledge. Take the old, then add the new. The Trinity finally comes to view to coin a false catechetical adage. The two testaments are necessary because this is indeed how and constitutes the fact that God speaks, God does work, and in so doing, while doing many things, God reveals. For if the Trinity is a mystery, as surely it is, far more unsettling historically is the mystery of the two testaments out of which the very conceptuality arises. A little bit later, he says, 
On the very basis of their plain sense reference, the testaments are not equivalent, for they do not always say the same thing, even if their divine burden is of a common and singular necessity. The Lord of Israel is the triune God, yes, but the triune God who speaks in the Old Testament. Yeah, great. I, I, that's a, a really helpful paradigm. And let me point out, because we talked earlier about the, the history of religions, scholarship, which identifies ideas or representations of God as its subject matter to process. What Radner is saying here is that it's not ideas or representations of God or portraits of God or whatever you want to use along those lines that is the matter in these testaments. It's God doing things. It's God speaking and acting and delivering and punishing and in the process also revealing God, right? So notice the difference here. The scriptures are precious, and the two testaments of the scripture are both necessary to this preciousness because they narrate the activity of God in our world, giving us relationship, a historical relationship with God, as we talked about in the previous podcast on prayer, that prayer then takes on this form of a living out a theological existence, living in relationship to God historically. And so the Testaments are actually delivering God as a historical actor so that we become partners with God in a covenant history. And I think it's really important to emphasize here that if we're speaking now as believing Christians, then Jesus and the stories told in the New Testament are part of the ongoing narration of the creation of the whole human race and of the people of Israel. They are not a, it doesn't represent a radical split or a breaking off or a starting over there that as Christians, it's really important to emphasize the continuity. Now, of course, because there are two religions that emerge, there is discontinuity. And that's the really obvious thing for us to fix on. But there has to also be continuity for the story even to be intelligible. And I think one of the problems is that as Christians, the way either we choose or we tend to hear the stories like of Jesus' conflicts with the Pharisees, say, seems to be a Christian versus Jewish controversy. It's not. It is a within the people of Israel. Let's, let's just call it Israel rather than Judaism, because that's too misleading a term for us now. This is a, a an argument happening within Israel. There have been lots of arguments that happen within Israel. <laughs> there are lots of arguments right. God has with Israel, you know, throughout the, the Old Testament too. So we're not seeing, again, in this sort of enlightenment history of religions ways of a parting of the ways from between an inferior and a superior thing, but an ongoing episode. Now, we as Christians are going to say this is a an episode with a magnitude as great as that of the creation itself, but not because it's separating out from the history that came before, but is continuing and doing something within it. You know, and what you're, we can connect what you just said, Sarah, to the earlier discussion of docetism and Christology. Because what docetists always say is something like this. The Old Testament is nothing but the historical presupposition of the New Testament. And Rudolf Bultmann even took that further and said that the history of Jesus is nothing but the presupposition of the message of his resurrection. 
It has only a historical role as setting the stage for the decisive action, see? And so that that connects very much with this uh, derogation of the Old Testament scripture as nothing but a uh, historical stepping stone on the way to the New Testament. But I argue that it's it's a, a new form of docetism. But if you're really consequent with this way of thinking and are radical with it, also the history of Jesus, this Palestinian Jew of the first century, is also nothing but a presupposition of the message of the resurrection. And so the Christology has no content. If Christology is to have content referring to an embodied person, it's got to refer to Jesus, the Palestinian Jew, the child of Israel, the pupil of the scriptures. And you can't even call him the Christ without reference to those same scriptures. So what you're saying is is that it's too easy for us to take resurrection as a principle of the way the cosmos now works, uh, as we found out. And the fact that it's Jesus who's risen, Jesus who is, as you say, the pupil of the Hebrew scripture, the son of Israel, is irrelevant and therefore actually would encourage Christians to just cast all that Israel stuff aside because it's irrelevant to the principle of resurrection. Yeah, and I'm afraid a lot of contemporary Lutheran theology actually unwittingly falls into this trap um, of thinking that what matters is a the moment of a liberating message that has no necessary connection to Jesus who was crucified for proclaiming the kingdom of God, but vindicated on the third day and thus entitled to the uh, Israelite office of the Messiah. Right. So if you don't have have the Old Testament, you're not going to have Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus, you're not going to have the Old Testament as a Christian. That's the, They're entangled with each other. And if you lose one or the other, you're going to lose the whole thing. And in the end, why should that be the source of liberation at all? Yeah, <laughs> the it, whole thing goes it, down the drain. It, it actually becomes a kind of liberation mongering. Uh, preachers running after events that they think are liberative and then calling it the gospel. Right. Uh, so this is a good pl- place to invoke an absolutely brilliant book I read that you introduced me to by a man named Brent Strawn. It's called The Old Testament is Dying, which is a, a fantastically um, alarming title, but very, very true. And he does both um, sociological as well as theological analysis of how the Old Testament has been slipping away from Christian consciousness as indeed holy scripture and a matrix of thought. And he argues, I think, very compellingly that if you lose the Old Testament, you will lose Jesus. There is simply no having Jesus without the Old Testament from which everything he does arises. Absolutely right. I'll tell you something else you're going to lose. You're going to lose any living connection to our own North American history. You cannot understand Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address or his second inaugural address, to mention the two great ones, if you are not immersed in the Hebrew scriptures. You cannot understand the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and all of his preaching unless you are likewise immersed in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, You'll reduce Lincoln and King, two of the greatest Americans who ever lived, 
to mere icons uh, that you can co-opt for your own purposes, but the, the density, the thickness of their embodied uh, lives and uh, decisive actions for the good uh, will be utterly lost to you if you cannot see them as playing out the scripture in their own lives. Well, and of course, and both of those figures are addressing the crisis of, you know, the American origin story in the enslavement of the Africans. And of course, it was those Africans who were enslaved who started reading the Bible that their evil masters shoved on them and discovered in it the Exodus. And it was this Old Testament story. I mean, they were obviously believers in Jesus too, but it was the Exodus story that was their origin story uh, and, and their inspiration to move forward out of that that period of slavery. But I think, Dad, we have to acknowledge that this history of religions approach is going to continue to be compelling to lots of people who can say, well, okay, that's how Lincoln and King got there, but we don't need the Old Testament. We don't need the Bible. We don't need Christianity to get there. We can simply extract the principle of, say, human rights or liberation or uh, freeing the slaves or whatever without any of that. And, you know, as far as civil righteousness goes, I'm all in favor of lots of people, including non-believers, being against the enslavement of other human beings, for example. But um, I, I don't think we can ultimately make the appeal on those grounds. I think we have to allow that that the faith of the Christian faith in, in its own integrity needs the Old Testament, but not because we're going to get to some other, you know, preferred social goal or historical understanding apart from it. Uh, your qualification is well taken, and I agree with it, yeah. Yeah. So let's go back now to the Old Testament and how to think about it as Christians, because this is, is really what I want to get to. So a first intervention I would like to make on this score is that um, there are lots of ways to think about what Jesus is. And I, you know, I kind of think back to like um, debates about the atonement and like, why did Jesus have to die? And did it have to hurt? And is there, why is there blood and his sacrifice? And, you know, a lot of alarms that are sounded about this being, you know, brutal or senseless or, or whatever. And um, what I have really learned from study of the Old Testament is that you can't bring a generic thought world to the New Testament or to the Jesus story. Like you can't, you can't start from say science. You can't start from whatever your you know Gentile culture <laughs> happens to be, even if it has been very inflected by Christianity. You can't start with some sort of like a rationalization about how things work. Um, if you want to understand Jesus, you have to understand the Old Testament because the Old Testament does actually provide, I would say the Old Testament even creates the world in which Jesus is possible. And you see that ranging all across the Old Testament. It's, it's not specific. So, I mean, to one section or another. So, for example, I think Isaiah is the easiest point of entrance for Christians because, of course, we have the powerful um, language of, um, you know, the wound, one who is wounded for our sakes, um, the, the lion and the lamb, the comforting of the people. There's no... There, it's not a mistake that so much Isaianic language is used to illuminate um, who Jesus is, and it's no mistake that Jesus uses so much of so much of his preaching emerges from Isaiah. But you also see it, and um, we'll we'll do later in the season an episode on Leviticus. The all of the imagery, all of the not the imagery, the reality that Leviticus provides in terms of concepts like jubilee, redemption, blood sacrifice, the presence of God in the tabernacle, and so forth. This is the 
the world out of which Jesus as the sacrificial lamb emerges. So if you have a uh, try to have a secular concept of blood sacrifice for the salvation of others, it's icky and weird and dangerous and seems to set a very bad precedence. The only way it's meaningful is if you understand it in the context of something like Leviticus. That's going to be a very interesting and provocative podcast. Uh, and I, I'm glad we've delayed that a few weeks because I have to brush up on Leviticus. <laughs> Okay, but perhaps you could just comment generally to the idea that Jesus is unintelligible apart from the the Old Testament. Absolutely, and I think the proof's in the pudding that if you throw away the Old Testament, you end up with docetism. You end up with saying that Jesus is simply a cipher for a liberation event that can be anything at all, according to the whims of the particular preacher. You can't refer to Jesus in a way that checks proclamation critically. The check on proclamation that is critical has to do with his playing the roles both of the Davidic Messiah, the prophet like unto Moses, and the suffering servant of the Lord. All of these, or the great high priest or something like that, all of these roles that Jesus enacts in his history with us are roles that he learned from the scriptures and appropriated according to his own filial relationship with the God of the Old Testament. So good. So I think that one, you know, that's that's a, an easier point of access. Let's talk now about what it would mean to talk about God as Trinity in the Old Testament. I think this one makes people even more alarmed because, you know, you can see the Isaiah stuff and the David stuff and Jesus, but the Trinity seems to be a really severe Christian innovation over against the monotheism of Israel. So let, let, give us your thoughts on that. Well, you know, I just read uh, the wonderful commentary on Deuteronomy by our fellow Lutheran theologian Deanna Thompson. And Oh yeah, she's great. Yeah, and it's a very it's a very good commentary, good theological commentary on Deuteronomy and she she would of course I think uh, uh, resonate with a lot of the things that we're saying here today. But one of the things she points out is that Deuteronomy has a double witness on monotheism. There are passages like the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord alone, or as you often translate it, the Lord, the Lord is one. This can be taken in a strictly monotheistic sense. There's only one true God, and this is it. Or it can be taken in a monolatrous sense. There's only one God. There's truly only one God for us, his chosen people, Israel. So which is it? Monotheism? There is no God but this one, or monolatry, there is no God for us but this one. And she points out that even the Shema can be translated either way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is the Lord alone. That's the monolatrist uh, translation. Or it can be translated, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. That's the monotheistic translation. Now, naturally, Raising the possibility of monolatry is, again, upsetting to certain classical Christian theologies of absolute theism, um, as we discussed when we talked about prayer, as opposed to a, a more dialectical view in which the immutable God is capable of mutable relationships. So Deanna points out that in Deuteronomy, it's 
the Lord himself who gives other nations their space, their territory, and gives them over to the worship of their own gods. And that's okay. In fact, with Moab and Edom, the Lord forbids uh, his people from making any war against them because he's given them the space and even their own religion with their own gods and so forth. And I think in our contemporary age of religious pluralism, this theology uh, makes us recognize that ultimately, perhaps, God is one. But in the interim, for right now, there are many so-called gods and many so-called lords. But for us, there is one God, the Father through whom all things exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things exist. So that admits of a kind of pluralism, but how does that help us as Christians identify or fails to let us identify the Trinity as such? in the Old Testament. Right. I think one of the implications is that strict monotheism is not ipso facto the teaching of the Old Testament, that the angel of the Lord figures like the angel of the Lord in the Pentateuch and indeed throughout the history and so forth (coughs) refer to ways in which there is even relationality or plurality within God. And those kinds of things appear within the Old Testament. Now, is this a proof of the Trinity in the Old Testament? No. It's simply a way of saying that the Old Testament scriptures allow for the development of something like the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. So, in other words, it's not doing abject violence to the Old Testament for believing Christians to perceive within their pages this possibility. It's not a proof, but it's not a violence either. Yes, and I think that when then when Christians... Uh, undertake the act of appropriating the scriptures of Israel for Christian purposes, as long as that's clear that that's what we're doing. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're making this our own. We're, we're making use of this material to proclaim the Christian message. As long as it's intellectually honest and it's not coercive, you blind Jews, why don't you see this, as they did in the medieval disputations. But rather... As Christians, this is how we read the text, and here we perceive the echoes of the doctrine of the Trinity or something like that. One of my actually favorite examples of this is another commentary by another Lutheran theologian, uh, Robert Jensen's Ezekiel commentary in the Brazos series we've mentioned before. And he simply notes that Ezekiel the prophet experiences the Lord who you know, the Lord is identified as the, you know, the one God of Israel who is in heaven. But in Ezekiel's own immediate experience of the Lord is either as the voice of the Lord or the hand of the Lord. And they don't appear at the same time. And the nature of the the revelation given to Ezekiel varies depending on whether it's the voice or the hand. Um, and so Jensen, you know, is very Uh, open and forthright about his reading Ezekiel as a Christian believer in the doctrine of the, in the Trinity. And, um, you know, he sees in that indeed the the father in heaven and the voice of the Lord is the son and the hand of the Lord is the spirit. And I think he makes quite a winsome case. And again, like you, I'm, I'm not interested in, in proof or coercion out of this, but I am interested in opening up that interpretive possibility. And what I find so compelling about Jensen is that he really pays attention to the text. I don't feel that he's doing this in order to eisegete or to force something there that's not there, but it is indeed through the act of 
devoted attention to what the text itself is trying to say, that he is able to perceive something there that, that has this analogous relationship to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. I think that's right. That What makes a Christian reading of the scriptures of Israel persuasive is that it takes the text seriously. It doesn't try to force it to mean something that it doesn't. And when it does uh, want to uh, make theological uh, points with the material, it's intellectually honest about what it's doing. Exactly, exactly. So I think that now, as we, again, we, we need to wrap up soon, but um, I think the here, here's a challenge I'd like to put out. Is it possible for Christians, pastors, to preach on the Old Testament just by itself? Like, could you conceivably even have a Sunday worship service where your only reading was from the Old Testament? Is that allowed? Is that good? Is that edifying? Um, if you do that, do you need to Christianize it? What does it mean to Christianize it? What's the right way or the wrong way to Christianize it? So let's let's just talk, how would we go about answering that, that possibility? I think part of the problem here is that we only think of Christian preaching at the Sunday morning Eucharist of the faithful. And that's an impossibly narrow location for the kind of preaching of the Old Testament that we're both calling for. The Sunday Eucharist has a specific purpose to edify with word and sacrament the gathering of the faithful presumably those who are already catechized. I think what we need, and this at the time of the Reformation, there were services in the church practically every day of the week, right? And that's where a lot of the Old Testament preaching took place uh, to instruct. It, it performed a kind of catechetical function uh, to make the story of the scriptures known to the people, which you can't do in the space of a Sunday morning service, no matter what else you're trying to accomplish, right? So I've said again and again, we need to have, like the evangelicals have discovered long ago, we need lifelong Christian education, and we need a midweek evening service for catechetical purposes uh, that would just luxuriantly explore the many nooks and crannies of Old Testament narrative in particular. Okay. Well, let me push back a little bit. So for example, suppose you were a pastor in Tokyo where people are in at work basically six days a week from morning until nightfall. And if they have any interest of uh, Christianity, the only time they can get there is on Sunday morning. And so as a pastor, you are faced with people who can't come any other time of the week and you regularly have non-Christians show up in your service then what are you going to do with the Old Testament? And of course, this is a purely hypothetical case I'm laying before you here. Yes, and it's also a highly contextual question in which I'm not participating in the context, uh, so I can't <laughs> hardly offer an opinion about that, can I? Other than to say, is Sunday a work day in Japan? Uh, no, but it seems that as many people are people work late at night during the week, and it seems often on Saturdays, too. It's hard, it's hard to get people out at midweek. But no, actually, I was just setting that up because I, I still want to push the question of, you know, you have an Old Testament reading if you're following the lectionary every Sunday. Can you, as a Christian pastor, just preach the Old Testament? And if so, how? Uh, I am inclined to answer that question. Yes, you can preach the Old Testament text. 
though of course as a Christian preacher you're always happy uh, to bring the gospel in, whether it's a New Testament text or an Old Testament text, if it's not there. You know, so the point I'm trying to make is there's some New Testament texts in which there is no gospel. It's just yeah. It's 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 law and and judgment and and even wrath of God. And do you, as a Christian preacher, ever let the law have the final word in a, in a sermon? I hope not. Maybe in Lent. <laughs> Maybe, but that's a very liturgical, determined uh, space and so forth. You always bring in the gospel, no matter what text you're preaching on. Of course, in preaching on the Old Testament, you unveil or discover the gospel and make it articulate. Thanks. Actually, that's, so that's exactly where I wanted to bring this to end it up. Is that um, So again, to go back to Luther, early on, he talks as if the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is gospel. And I'm afraid too many people still observe that lesson and, and don't move on like Luther did. And what Luther realized before too long by the 1520s is that there is gospel all over the Old Testament, just like, as you said, there is law all over the New Testament. They are not two dispensations. And so indeed, you can preach the gospel from the Old Testament. And I think that's the point we want to get to, is that the gospel is always God's loving intention and promise to save, and that appears in the Old Testament, just as the law, which is God's commands about how we are to live with the creation he's entrusted to us, is in both Testaments. So in a way, I think what we want to say as Christians is that the Old Testament versus New Testament argument has to finally be artificial in the theological sense, because theologically, what we're commanded to do is preach the gospel, and the gospel is in both places. And if we're not seeing the gospel in the Old Testament, then we haven't really understood the gospel. Right. We would have to, I guess we're out of time, but we would really have to go into the theology of the various covenants, the covenant with Abraham, the covenants at Mount Sinai, Horeb, uh, the covenant of at Moab, the covenant renewal ceremony uh, uh, after Joshua leads the people into Israel, Josiah's rediscovery of the law and the renewal ceremony there. I mean, and contrast all that or compare and contrast all that with what Jesus calls the New Testament, a new covenant in my blood, uh, really to get thickly into those things uh, scripturally. But yes, your overall point is is exactly right on it. Yeah, I think we're going to be continuing to talk about this topic whenever we, you know, talk about biblical books. But but on and on, I think it's one that bears a lot of repeating. And there are topics I wanted to take up today that we didn't even get to. So, uh, but we will continue with this conversation in a sense because in the next episode we are going to be talking about the first two thirds of Acts, and there we will see very much this question of how the faith of Israel and faith in Jesus interact with each other. Outstanding. Can't wait. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.